Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrick, joined by staff writer Megan Day. What's up, Megan? Hey, Micah. How you doing? I'm good, as good as possible. At least I'm good, uh, probably better than you in that I don't have to deal with any like wildfires or extreme heat waves right now. Yeah, there was a heat wave. It hit 112, I believe, in Los Angeles, followed by wildfire season, which has come upon us. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy here. This is comeuppance for all the pictures that you send me. You're like, look at my backyard. Look at the beautiful Southern California <laughs> life I'm living. Aren't you jealous? I'm like, ha, who's, who's egg, jealous now? <laughs> egg on my face. Yeah. So today you and I are talking uh, about anti-communism and anti-anti-communism. Uh, we have a great discussion with uh, Kristen Godsey and Scott Sihan. Uh, and uh, you and I both are familiar with Kristen's work. You interviewed her for Jacobin about her book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, that came out a couple years ago. I read that book, and uh, it's a fantastic book. Uh, Kristen is uh, somebody who just makes a, a really... Uh, sort of simple but important argument about the nature of, I mean, this is her whole academic career is talking about what life under capital C communist countries actually looked like. And uh, it turns out that the answer is, uh, cannot be summarized in sort of like communism good or communism bad. And uh, she kind of seeks to excavate uh, some of the, you know, there's no danger in, in any of us losing the the horrors of Stalinism or anything like that. That is pretty well established, especially in the United States. But there is a danger of us losing uh, sight of the actual accomplishments of those uh, regimes. And she talks about them in that book uh, in the context of uh, gender and gender equality and women's basic happiness. And uh, part of her argument is just that, yeah, actually... Uh, life under those regimes was uh, in some ways better for women uh, than life in uh, hyper-capitalist, hyper-neoliberal countries, both in Europe and the United States, is now. Yeah, absolutely. The basic argument of that book, uh, which I loved, by the way, and I recommend that you pick pick it up if you get a chance, is that, yeah, like men can behave in extremely sexist and repressive ways. Um, and that obviously there needs to be some sort of cultural project to address that kind of misogynistic, sexist behavior. But at the same time, they're also maybe one of the best ways to go about that is to provide women with a degree of economic stability and independence that allows them to leave situations in which they're experiencing misogynistic abuse, which then conditions men on a mass scale to not do that if they would like to have a partner. So the, the converse being that if you're in a situation like we have now, where in the United States, where we have a complete free market and we have a threadbare social safety net, there are lots of women who are putting up with sexist behavior from partners or family members or bosses who can't leave. They can't walk away. And so there's it's, it doesn't have that same kind of conditioning effect on mass. Um, so that's a really interesting argument of the book. But like you said, one of the main real takeaways, and I mentioned this in our interview, for me, is not just about the gender relations, it's just about the the nuances of life um, in the Eastern Bloc um, and how it's just not, it, when we're, we're raised with this idea that it's just like completely dull and robotic or worse yet, like chaotic and, and repressive um, and violent. Um, and life, I think what I got from that book and I've gotten from elsewhere too, but this book does a really good job of it. Life was just life. It was complex. There were good and bad parts of it, just like there are good and bad parts of our lives. And furthermore, some people 
um, then and there were had really um, terrible lives and some people had fine lives, just like they do in the United States, and that you can't extrapolate from that, that communism, therefore, is completely inadmissible and that, and that socialism writ large is a completely inadmissible ideology um, by focusing in specifically on Stalin's crimes. So that's that's the basis of our conversation today. Right. And we're, we're talking specifically about the ideology of anti-communism, which is uh, which exists. I mean, I think there's a temptation among some people who, let's say, uh, you know, somebody who's come to socialism in, in recent years since uh, the, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign, the first campaign, and they, you know, associate socialism with like, you know, good social democratic policies like Medicare for all. Uh, they've got an instinctual uh, aversion to uh, Stalinism, but they also are just like, Stal- like, what does that even have to do with me? Which is a pretty good question. What does Stalinism have to do with uh, democratic socialists in America in 2020? But uh, where anti-communism fits in that can be kind of difficult because people can think, well, uh, if I, you know, I just want, I, I want people to have health care. I want people to have free college. Uh I don't like what I've heard about uh, Stalin, and so does that mean that I should uh, be, you know, somebody who considers myself an anti-communist? And we talk in great detail in this discussion about how anti-communist ideology is one that is not just sort of like taking a brave stand against the undemocratic and, and brutal aspects of Stalinist regimes or other kind of authoritarian communist uh, regimes. In fact, it's an ideology uh, that is about smashing any kind of progressive social change whatsoever. Uh, Anti-communism uh, historically has not not been a force for for you know spreading democracy around the world. Quite the contrary, it's 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 very often been uh, you know justified for you know mass slaughter in countries like Indonesia or in uh, Vietnam uh, or you know the murdering of entire villages in El Salvador or you know the the rape and murder of nuns in Nicaragua i mean this is not a noble uh, ideology uh, in in its you know historical form and it's one that never disappears in America. I mean, even in the years where socialism largely disappeared, anti-communism was still present and sort of like because there was not a real left to wield that anti-communist fire against, uh, you know, people like Barack Obama became like uh, the, the socialist of the day or whatever. And this this has not disappeared. And um, I think part of the reason to bring it up is also that we can assume, and we talk in this this conversation about how, you know, Trump is trying to, trying to strike up the band uh, in the in the old anti-communism uh, of, of yesteryear. It's not really working, and it comes off as pretty absurd. But we can assume that, you know, the anti-communist uh, uh, impulse is, is far from snuffed out in America. We can assume that we're, this is going to continue in the years to come, especially as, as you and I have argued, the left is going to continue to get uh, more relevant and more powerful. And historically, that always means that uh, the resurgence of a, a new kind of vicious anti-communism can be right around the corner. Yeah, I mean, we're on the record saying that we think we might be due in the near future for a third Red Scare. And uh, I think that that's why we need to be taking this kind of stuff seriously. And I think another reason is that you as an individual democratic socialist may not have a ton of opinions about Stalin. 
But the people who do have a ton of opinions about Stalin also have a ton of opinions about you and the things that you care about. And they are using their opinions about Stalin and everybody else's opinions about Stalin to stop you from pursuing your political aims, which means that you should probably start caring, if not about Stalin, then about what other people say and think about Stalin and why. That was a little elliptical, but I think it's airtight. I think you'll find that it's airtight. Um, and I also, I think that it's important to be thinking now about the the kinds of terminology that we see popping up. You, you hear less about Stalinism in the summer of 2020, but you're hearing a ton about Marxism in the summer of 2020. And in fact, I think you're hearing more about Marxism from the right than you have at any time that I can recall. I have a couple of reasons why I think that might be, one of which is that I think the term socialism has actually been detoxified and like sanitized a little bit by Bernie Sanders and by the democratic socialist movement, meaning that it doesn't scare people as much and so they need to reach for something a little scarier. I think Marxism is close at hand for a variety of reasons, one of which being that the term cultural Marxism has become a flashpoint and a buzzword on the on the intellectual dark web, you know, sort of corner of the right. And I think that's leaking into the mainstream. Um, and another being that, as we discuss in this conversation, um, one of the things that anti-communism does is it collapses any figure associated with anything related to communism into sort of one thing. And it also folds in Nazis, for the record. There's a lot of incoherent ideological collapsing happening. But Marx is actually function Marx's name is sort of functioning as a stand-in for Stalin's name. We actually I brought up a tweet that kind of demonstrated this perfectly uh, halfway through, through the discussion. But I think you're hearing it a lot, the idea that Marxism is a totalitarian and authoritarian and anti-democratic and violent ideology. And the evidence that is being marshaled for that is you know, a few decades of the Soviet Union's history in which Stalin was in charge. So there's definitely a collapse happening there. Um, as Marxists, you, know, you and I are Marxists who think that Marx is good and we are proud to be Marxists. We're proud to carry on that tradition. It's a little alarming to see the term Marxism popping up constantly on the right, you know, more and more as the months go on, Donald Trump talking about Marxism and, and so on. So I think we do need to be paying close attention to why that might be and what it might have to do with anti-communism historically. Right. And to me, that's part of the reason why we need to have this conversation is that so people recognize what anti-communists are actually up to. Uh, and it is not, you know, they, they're, they're not they're up to no good. They're up to no good. They are some nefarious motherfuckers and uh, you should be uh you should you should have your your hackles up you should be ready uh, to deal with that uh in in the months and years to come so uh here is our discussion uh with Kristen godsey and uh with uh scott sehan scott sehan is a professor of philosophy at bowden college and the author of free will and action explanation a non-causal compatibilist account and Kristen Godsey is a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania, the author of many books, uh, including uh, the one we just mentioned, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. Uh, she is also a, uh, a longtime uh, socialist uh, activist and was the faculty mentor of the uh, Young Democratic Socialists of America chapter at Bowden uh, when she taught there uh, beginning in 2002. Um, and she also wanted me to mention uh, something that I didn't even know existed, uh, but I'm definitely going to listen to now, which is her podcast on Alexandra Kalantai uh, called AK-47. Alexandra Kalantai is a, a famous 
uh, feminist socialist from the kind of uh, early years of uh, the socialist movement. And so uh, I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners uh, listening to this podcast will want to check out her uh, very <laughs> dopely named podcast, AK-47. I'm going to go Alexander listen to it right Columbia. now. That's so cool. <laughs> Kristen and Scott, welcome. Hi. Thanks. Nice to be here. So let's just start with the the most basic question we can on this topic, which is uh, what is anti-communism and what uses has it been wielded towards in uh, recent uh, American and world history? Wow, that's a really big question um, because it's a, a really long history and a really complicated answer. Scott, do you want to take a shot at this one first before I go off? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, in our Aeon article, what we were talking about were these um, arguments against the success of communism, 20th century communism, with an eye towards trying to undermine contemporary socialists as well. But of course, it all gets tied to a long history of the Cold War um, that Kristen knows a lot more about. But, you know, you get all kinds of these arguments uh, attacking communism and you know, some better arguments, some worse arguments, but a lot of really lousy arguments. Yeah. And I think, you know, anti-communism, first of all, it has a really long history. It goes all the way back in the United States to 1919 and the first Red Scare, which, by the way, a very young J. Edgar Hoover was involved in. Uh, there's a, a scholar at Yale, Beverly Gage, who's writing a wonderful biography of J. Edgar Hoover and really talks about how he sort of cut his teeth on anti-communism in the from 1919 to 1920 during the first Red Scare. And I think the big problem, in at least in the United States, is that anti-communism has, it's like as American as apple pie and baseball. Um, there were deep-seated fears that this nefarious ideology was going to somehow undermine you know, the freedoms of the United States or the, you know, more directly kind of the pluto the plutocracy of the United States would be threatened um, by workers demanding their rights. And of course, the success in the revolution of the revolution in Russia, even though, of course, that was sort of the last person that Marx thought that the revolution should happen, created a kind of hope among a lot of workers that they would be able to reimagine the workplace so that it would be more equitable, actually maybe own some of those means of production. And so from the very get-go, of course, there were these deep anti-communist sentiments, but there was a very strong communist movement and socialist movement in this country. I'm sure you, I know you've talked about this on your podcast before, and I listened to your podcast about the Vivian Gornick's book, The Romance of American Communism, and sort of all of the ways in which workers and different people came to that movement and felt empowered by that in the United States. But then after the Second World War, you know, really with the breakdown in communication, really like Truman not upholding Roosevelt's promises. And the get -go, from the get-go, Stalin and Truman sort of not really trusting each other. And the, the deep anti-communism and all of these loyalty oaths and, you know, the ways in which red-baiting uh, Truman when he was up for re-election in 1948. Uh, Henry Wallace was running as a candidate for the Progressive Party and the, the level of red baiting was so severe. And of course, this was happening against the background of the House Un-American Activities Committee. People who were followers of Wallace lost their jobs. This was really like totally anti-democratic, which is really ironic, I find, because of course, the whole reason we were against communism was because it was anti-democratic. But it worked. 
So you're describing a kind of a red canceling. It's it's red canceling. The earliest example of absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I think that you know, young people today learn a lot about McCarthyism, but McCarthy comes after the House Un-American Activities Committee. McCarthyism really comes after this like terrible red baiting that's already happening during the 1948 presidential campaign, and you know, and this history continues in 1950. Helen Gehagen ran for Senate against Richard Nixon in California. And they like the campaign against her was that she was pink all the way down to her underwear. And it was so effective. It was also very anti-Semitic because of her husband. But the thing is, is that the reason why anti-communism continues is because it works. You can say whatever you want about the ideals of socialism, about like workers having more rights or taxation and redistribution or God forbid regulations on the banking or the finance industry. And all the other side has to do is go, oh my God, gulags, purges, famines, it's all gonna end in totalitarian hell. And and the debate is pretty much over. I think that in the current contemporary moment, this election, you know, that we're in right now, the fact, that like immigrants aren't scary enough and Islamic terrorists aren't scary enough. Like Trump is running out of imaginary enemies. And so I'm not at all surprised that it's happening again, but it's very, very important that people understand that this has a history and that it's not necessarily rooted in historical reality. There are crimes, but those are not the entire history of communism or socialism. Right. It's not like there aren't crimes that can be alluded to. The problem that you guys identify in your Eon essay, which I want to talk about, is that the allusion to those crimes is then followed by a political conclusion. And there's a missing intermediary step, which is supposed to establish, it's implied that uh, the ideology itself, because it was the ideology of a regime that was responsible for those crimes, is therefore something that has to be written off or dismissed wholesale. Um, but you guys point out that there's there's something missing there. Can you explain that argument a little bit? And also, I, I mean, maybe I'll just say what I think about it, which is that the reason that they don't elaborate on that intermediary step is because it applies equally to capitalism. Capitalism's body count obviously is enormous. The crimes of you know capitalist states uh, throughout history have been atrocious. Uh, and when you elaborate that intermediary step, then you can't really use that argument as a cudgel against communism in the same way which is why they're keeping it keeping it quiet or keeping it on the background. Can you explain that element of your Eon article a little bit? Yeah, that's, um, I, I think that everything you said is exactly right there, that they they will say 100 million people died under communism, or there's a, they'll have simpler versions of it. The Turning Point USA has this meme that just has 44% of millennials think socialism is okay or something to that effect. And then it says, this is socialism. And it has a picture of a man in Chinese, a Chinese man in military uniform about to execute a woman. Um, and so, you know, this is socialism uh, or, you know, that, and then the victims of communism Memorial Foundation putting up these billboards in Times Square saying a hundred million people died under communism. And they just say that and sort of, you know, exactly what the conclusion is, is presumably the conclusion that they want, if they want to make it an argument, is that communism should be rejected. That conclusion doesn't follow um, from the fact that 100 million people died under communism. It just, you know, there's, there's no logical link. You need to 
provide some sort of intermediate premise to make that follow, and they aren't explicit about that. And it's exactly for the reasons that you say that, you know, once you start to spell it out, and that's what we do in the article, we say, okay, here would be a way of making the argument valid, where that just means that the conclusion does logically follow from the premises, Um, doesn't mean that the premises are true. Uh, You could say, if any country is based on a particular ideology, and it did many horrible things, then that ideology should be rejected. And then the first premise is, well, 100 million people died and under Stalin um, and Mao, many horrible things happened under communism. So you could say countries that were based on a communist ideology did many horrible things. And then, yes, then it follows that communism should be rejected. But if that's the argument, then, of course, we could run a very parallel argument, a perfectly parallel argument about capitalism. Exactly the same general premise that if any country is based on a particular ideology and it did many horrible things, then that ideology should be rejected. And then we nearly need merely point out that the United States, for one, along with the United Kingdom and others, countries that are based on capitalist ideology have done many horrible things in the past. And so it would follow equally well um, that capitalism should be rejected. And so you can then play with it and try to figure out more. And I can, you know, we, we sort of do some of that where we say, well, maybe the premise is something different. Um, and we can go into the, the possibilities. But the, one of the interesting things is they don't do that for us. Um, they don't fill in that intermediate premise. And then there's this sort of suggestion that when you point out bad things about capitalism, that you're just doing whataboutism. Um, it's as if, you know, you say something bad about Trump's policies and then they turn around and say, yeah, but Biden sniffs women's hair. Um, and, and so it's just like pointing out something bad about the other side just as a way of distraction. But that's not what's going on here when we point these things out about capitalism. It's not just saying capitalism is bad too. It's taking the very same premise, the very same argument that they seem to be making and saying, well, if you're going with that argument then it would also follow that capitalism should be rejected. If they have a more subtle argument, they could say if any country based on a particular ideology did horrible things, and if those horrible things are the natural conclusions of that ideology, then it should be rejected. That's reasonably plausible. You know, if a country, if horrible things are the natural result of an ideology, then it should be rejected. But then to make the argument valid, to actually make it follow, you have to assert that the famines and the purges and the restrictions of rights in various ways, that uh, these hundred million deaths were the natural outcome of the communist ideology. And you, you would need a separate argument for that. That's not going to be at all obvious. Any defender of communism or even just somebody who wants to be reasonable will say, well, that's not true. But then there's also that the capitalist version of the argument would be that countries based on a capitalist ideology did many horrible things, and these things are the natural conclusions of capitalism. Um, And then you point to the horrible things that capitalism has done, say slavery, start there. Um, And of course, the defender of capitalism will say, yeah, but that's not a natural outcome of the ideology of capitalism. You know, where do you find in Adam Smith that we should be enslaving people? And we just let it go in the article there and say, okay, well, probably, yeah, we're we're not going to 
go there. But in fact, it's actually a little harder for the capitalist, um, depending on your version of capitalism, to defend that sort of thing and to say that slavery wasn't the outcome of the ideology. Milton Friedman famously had what he called the Friedman Doctrine, that basically the capitalist should do whatever makes the most money. Um, and that if they worry about things like social goods, like avoiding pollution or ending discrimination, and those are quotes from his 1970-1971 New York Times article, um, then they're violating their obligations to the shareholders because their job is to make as much money as possible so long as they play within the game, the rules of the game of the society. Well, in the antebellum South, the rules of the society included enslaving human beings. Um, and so by Friedman's own argument, those um, people running plantations had an absolute moral obligation to enslave people because that was the way they made as much money as possible until the rules of the game changed. Now, Friedman might advocate changing the rules and think that slavery is a bad thing, but as long as that was within the rules, his capitalist doctrine, the Friedman doctrine, would seem to suggest that we should expect slavery and that the capitalists um, plantation owners would be stupid not to enslave people. And so when we get back to the, you know, the two different versions of the argument, reject capitalism or reject communism, um, it's actually a little harder for the capitalists to say that some of these horrible things don't follow from the ideology of capitalism. In a, you know, given the right social conditions, slavery arguably does follow, at least from a Friedman type version of capitalism. Whereas I don't, think you're going to find anything in the writings of Marx and Engels saying that we should induce famines um, and that we should have purges. Right. And I think I think specifically there's nothing in the writing of Marx and Engels that points to the necessity of, you know, any of the processes that that culminated in famines or purges. However, it is the case that when you had mass famines in India and China in the late 19th century, as Mike Davis writes about in late Victorian holocausts, you can find direct quotes from Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations that say things like, and I have the quote right here in front of me, famine has never arisen from any other cause but the violence of government attempting by improper means to remedy the inconvenience of dearth. So that's a little, it's a little jargony, but the takeaway is that the reason for famine is that the government is meddling too much. So the government needs to step back and allow allow things to naturally run their course and prices to reset and an equilibrium to reestablish itself. So the British, because they were essentially um, acolytes of Smith at this point, simply followed that advice, resulting in the deaths of tens of millions of people in India and China, which I think is a is actually, a, we can make, like you say, we can make a much stronger case that in fact, capitalism's body count does owe to the ideology of capitalism in a way that communism's body count, which we're going to go ahead and acknowledge is a real thing here, 20th century body count of Stalin, for example, Stalin and Mao, doesn't actually, isn't traceable to the ideology espoused by Marx and Engels. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great example. Yeah. Uh, the example that you bring up in your piece and that uh, anti-communists both today and historically love to bring up is, is a kind of equation of Nazism and communism. Uh, and you know, I, I suppose this is what the, the, the tallying the body count, saying that communism is responsible for 100 million deaths, uh, which... 
uh, th- that number that was uh, that was articulated in the, in the Black Book of Communism has always been disputed. I think ever since that book first came out in the '90s. But uh, that the, the 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 idea is like to to equate both of them. You still see this a lot with sort of contemporary academic historians, right? Uh, I think Timothy Snyder, for example, uh, wrote, wrote a book fairly recently uh, making this very uh, similar argument that essentially what what communism is about and what Nazism is about. Uh, are, are basically uh, equivalent. So can you just talk uh, about that argument and what is wrong with that claim? The body count of the Nazis goes straight back to their ideology in a way that the body count of communism doesn't. When you look at the Nazis and the Holocaust, it seems to me that their ideology was racist to the core um, and elevated German Aryans above all others. And they wanted Lebensraum and and autarky and that the war and the system, maybe even the systematic murdering, certainly the systematic maltreatment of the Jews was right there front and center at the heart of what Hitler had been talking about. And so it was part of the Nazi ideology. And so I think that the body count of Nazism is pretty well attributable to the ideology. And so when people say that these are just twin to totalitarianisms, and then when the little the Black Book says it's 100 million and only attributes 25 million to the Nazis because they don't count the war dead for some reason, it's very different. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that because, so in 2014, I actually published an article called A Tale of Two Totalitarianisms. It's a intellectual history of this concept of twin totalitarianisms. It was in a journal called The History of the present. And what I did in that article was really, I went back to the Historikerstreit, which was a, a, a debate, a historian's debate in sort of late uh, Germany in the 80s, like before reunification. And it was precisely around this guy Nolte, who was trying to say that Nazism wouldn't have existed had it not been for communism. Like class murder was the necessary precursor to race murder. And it's from Nolte and, 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 and Stefan Courtois, who was the editor of the Black Book of Communism, who really wanted, he was like desperate to get to this number of 100 million. So desperate, in fact, that two of the most prominent um, contributors to that volume, Nicholas Wirth and um, Margolin, um, two historians, basically kind of disavowed the volume almost as soon as it came out in, in, in France because they understood that Courtois was actually kind of fudging the numbers a little bit. So that's also really important. Even in his own introduction, Courtois sort of says, well, I'm using some loose, you know, kind of figures approximating it gets to 100 million. But so what happens is throughout the 90s, there's this sort of steady historical project to equate Nazism with communism. And this is particularly, it's very important that it's in Germany because of course Germany wants to see, first of all, Germany is trying to reunify. A lot of East Germans are not very happy about the way reunification is going. And so there's a very strong West German narrative about how horrible life was in Eastern Germany, how totalitarian life was in Eastern Germany, the Stasi and the Berlin Wall and the consumer shortages and the travel restrictions. And of course, that doesn't necessarily jive with people's own remembrances of that period of time, but it becomes this overarching, really powerful narrative, discursive narrative that slowly starts to creep out of Germany throughout Eastern Europe. 
And the reason it's so important, this narrative, is because you're building capitalism on the basis of previously state-owned economies. And so what that means in the 90s in particular, you've got to remember that the 90s for almost all East European countries, they had depressions which were longer and deeper than the Great Depression in the United States that began in 1929. A lot of people don't realize how devastating the collapse of these economies was after 1989 or 91, if we're talking about the former republics of the Soviet Union. So there's really a massive amount of pain that's happening in Eastern Europe. I mean, deaths of misery, like w w there's this whole thing now about, um, you know, all the, the way that austerity kills, right? And we have now very good evidence that massive shocks and cuts to the social safety, safety net really, you know, cause deep psychological damage that then increases mortality. So while this is going on, these countries are being transformed into into market economies, but they're also being transformed into democracies. And so people have the right to vote. And of course, what starts to happen, particularly in Russia in 1996, is they want to reject all of these neoliberal reforms that are being shoved down their throat. And many people become extremely nostalgic for the communist past. And they're, they're increasingly thinking about like how things might have been if they had taken a kind of third way. And so it's precisely at this moment when countries in Eastern Europe, when populaces and citizens in Eastern Europe start to really question democracy and capitalism, that you get this like incredible narrative hegemonic discussion about the crimes of communism. There are museums that are opened. In 2008, a bunch of uh, kind of right-wing or right-liberal politicians signed the uh, platform for memory of conscience and communism in Europe. And, and like the European Union actually creates a day to celebrate, uh, or to, not to celebrate, but to like um, honor the victims of, I think it's like, Nazism and Stalinism or something like that. But there's like an attempt, a very direct attempt to try to equate these two things, which is really interesting because if you go back and you read Hannah Arendt, who talks about totalitarianism, who's like kind of in so many ways the kind of progenitor of the discourse of totalitarianism, she doesn't even equate them in her own book. So it's, it's a way in which, um, and a couple of colleagues of mine in Romania have this wonderful term which they called zombie communism or zombie socialism and it's the way that the fear of the fear of um the crimes of communism the the fear of all the things that happened and i am not denying that those things happened it's it's important as as megan said to recognize that yes many people died but but this the way in which it has kind of had this weird afterlife is a way to keep people from voting for leftist parties it's a way to keep people from actually trying to advocate for any kind of social collective programs. And I think that this becomes extremely insidious because even though, and, and, and this, just one more thing, it's very important in Eastern Europe as well because the people who benefited from the collapse of communism, they had like property restituted to them because their grandparents had been expropriated by the communist regime or their parents. Like they were getting, literally getting property back in these privatizations in the 90s. And so any threat to 
the legitimacy of that process by saying, for instance, that these communist regimes were legitimate and expropriating the property in the first place is a threat to their property. So this wasn't just on an ideological level in Eastern Europe. This was also about people's like economic interests. And they will go really far. They'll do Holocaust denial. I could give all sorts of examples in Latvia, in Romania, in Bulgaria, where people are like, honoring the victims of communism. And like in the Bulgarian case, one of the quote unquote victims of communism is the actual minister of interior who signed his name on the um, warrants that allowed for the deportation of the Thracian and Macedonian Jews to Treblinka. So he's an, a, considered a victim of communism. So, so this discourse then exists. And then what starts to happen, and I think this is what, you know, again, I don't know if this was intentional or this is the law of unintended consequences. But what, what starts to happen is when you have a discourse of twin totalitarianisms, when you create the equivalence between Nazism and communism or any kind of left politics, because let's face it, like even kind of borderline democratic socialism for the right automatically gets affiliated with the worst crimes of Stalin's gulag um, and purges and famines and everything like that. But when you have this moral equivalent and you begin to see a political situation where ordinary workers and citizens are getting fed up of the plutocracy and they start to use the political system to advocate for their own rights, right? Elites, you know, you get this polarization and elites look and they say, okay, we've got left-wing radicals and we've got right-wing radicals, which are, which, and since they're morally equivalent, the right-wing radicals are the ones that are gonna best protect our property. And so we'll go with them. Um, and, and I think that that's precisely, in some ways, this twin totalitarian narrative, which is what I talk about in this 2014 article, is precisely paves the way for the resurgence of fascism or what um, Traverso calls post-fascism. Because fascism, if it's the exact same thing as communism and we have to choose one, fascism is the better one to choose because it's less likely to threaten our property. Right, and there you're you're getting at uh, a kind of answer to what the the, the original uh, question about what anti-communism is is for, um, and I I bring this up because I think you know there's a long history in the United States, for example, of liberal anti-communism, which says you know we we, we don't you know we, we don't we're, we we want to fight these totalitarian uh, regimes like the Soviet Union out of a sense of wanting to uh, defend basic liberal values, uh, you know, freedom of assembly and speech and all of, all of the rest of it. Um, but like, it's clear that these, this is the end towards which uh, anti-communism and uh, en ends up getting wielded for, right? It's, it is, uh, it is a fundamentally uh, anti-democratic uh, kind of politics and, and one that uh, often ends up, just uh, even opting for, I mean, yeah, like you're opting for some really just not some of the worst, worst of humanity uh, because they're like uh, most, you know, more or less on the same plane as uh, these awful totalitarian communists. But like, at least they won't, uh, I don't know, at least you'll get to keep, I'll, at least I'll get to keep my colonial manner or whatever. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah. Think about, I mean, Pinochet over Allende, right? We installed Pinochet. I mean, I, I don't know how much, you know, listeners know about the situation in Chile, but I can think of many, many examples of the way that this anti-communist discourse actually works, not only to uphold U.S., you know, imperialism and to promote 
U.S. economic interests abroad. But in many cases, you know, it's actually just a phantasm. In, in the case of you know Indonesia, they 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 they, they murdered you know up you know around a million people. The numbers are still fuzzy because they made up a story. Right about a, a, a group of, of supposed communists who killed these generals, and, and there's a great little um, side note to that as well, which is I was talking about this at a conference once, and the the story that incited the violence against the communists was that these generals were murdered, and they were supposedly murdered by women, communist women who like dismembered um, them, like cut off their genitals. And then proceeded, because there were some other communist members around, proceeded to have like this big orgy with this was the story that was told like and promoted by the Americans as well. And um, and so it created this kind of absolute chaos and violence in Indonesia. And this story of like how that happened is so was so pervasive in Indonesia that they actually exhumed the bodies of the gen the generals and showed and proved that their genitals were intact, right? That this was in fact a lie that had been concocted. And, and yet still, if you, if, you look, if you read about the 1965, um, the, the 1955 situation in, in Indonesia, they blame it on Gervani, this, this women's organization, these, these communist women. So like, it's so nefarious. And yet the thing is, is that it's really hard to talk about. And I can tell you this from a very from very personal experience. When you when you try to like, you know, many people have done this. Obviously, there are lots of scholars out there and and, and activists who have tried to point out some of these contradictions and and some of these obvious historical lies. And yet, I think as you know, as you said and as Scott said, it works. Anti-communism works. All they have to do is say she's a communist, and you could just discredit them. It's very frustrating. I have a couple of contemporary examples of the way that this discourse is manifesting in American popular political culture right now. And it's actually a lot less coherent than what you see on the, you know, communism kills billboard. Like we were talking about how those are, those are, are insufficient. Um, insufficient is one thing, incoherent is another thing. But I actually think that like, you know, the, the kinds of incoherence that you're encountering in the way that Marxism and communism are being invoked in the summer of 2020, uh, vis-a-vis the riot slash protest slash the Democratic Party and the and the presidential election, um, they, they trace back to, to all of the other things that you're talking about. They're just filtered in a kind of kaleidoscopic fashion through the like absolute insanity of our culture. So here are a couple of tweets that I, I wanted to read out loud to you that maybe we can talk about. The first is equating um, Antifa with uh, Nazism. And I think that by implication, because the right sees Antifa and communists, they see they see anarchists and communists as being a part of the same. But we, we don't, we understand the nuances, but they, they see them as being identical. So I'm going to read this tweet out loud to you, and then I'm going to read another out loud to you. Maybe we can talk about them as case studies. One is from Scott Adams, who says, I wonder if BLM knows Antifa was allied with Hitler and helped him come to power. It feels as if that would be a source of tension given BLM's focus on history. Does Antifa owe reparations to anyone who lost a family member or property to Nazi Germany? So that's the first tweet. 
<laughs> now we should we should be clear really really quickly. That's that's not just a random tweet that you found, no. you know, scouring the internet. That's Scott Adams, the uh, creator of Dilbert, I believe, who is uh, become a fairly prominent far right uh, commentator in recent years. And it has it had when I when I screenshotted it, it had eight thousand likes and counting, and that was pretty early in its in its life lifespan as a tweet. Um, so the the next one I think really speaks to the kind of the kind of thesis of, of your article in Eon actually, which is which is that this is the purpose of this kind of anti-communism is to weaponize it against even the uh, slightest hint of activism oriented towards social justice or economic redistribution. So um, I'm going to read this one out loud to you. This is from Katie Davis Court, who's a representative of uh, Turning Point USA. Uh, She says, you know what's ironic? LGBTQ plus Democrats rioting, looting, and burning down our cities to bring Marxism to America when Karl Marx literally murdered everyone who was gay. <laughs> I want to. I wanted to get some quick reacts from you guys on this. I will. I'll add my two cents to that last one. I actually think it shows pretty clearly how there's an equation of Stalinism and Stalin's mm-hmm. crimes with Marx and any kind of, you know, left-wing activism with Marxism, which is then equal to Stalin and his crimes. I mean, this person literally is confusing Marx with Stalin is what I understand that tweet to be about. I need a minute to process. Scott, you take it. (laughs) Those are pretty um, stunning. I'm not on Twitter, uh, so I don't only hear about some of these things rather indirectly. Um, But where else are you going to get all the your commentary from the creator of Dilbert? <laughs> I think I can live without that, actually. <laughs> and I used to like Dilbert, you know? It, was, it seems like a pretty good cartoon for a long time. Um, yeah, I don't know where he's getting his history, but even if so, I mean, that's another one of the things that they often do. I mean, it's just this put everything into the evil bucket, you know? It's just like there's a good bucket and there's an evil bucket and everything has to very clearly go into one or the other. And so the move of saying that um, bringing in Nazis and bringing and aligning them with Antifa, but also it's more directly done in Rand Paul's book um, on Against Socialism just from last year. He has a whole chapter dedicated to attempting to show that the Nazis were socialists. Um, And, you know, that that therefore, you know, again, if you, nothing can be worse than to be aligned with the Nazis. And if everything is black and white and you just get thrown into one of these categories, um, he has, you know, terrible arguments for the claim that Nazis are socialists. I mean, you know, the basic argument is, well, it's right there in the name. You know, it says National Socialist. Um, and, you know, of course, it was also the German Democratic Republic and it wasn't particularly democratic. So it, it doesn't work as an argument. But yeah, I think we'd like to have simple narratives. Um, and when we're talking about people, good people only do good things and bad people are all bad. Um, and it just sort of messes with us to, to think otherwise. Um, and, you know, and this is just a bad way of thinking in general. And one of the things where it comes up more recently is, is in terms of racism and Black Lives Matter and some of these things. Um, Robin D'Angelo in the book White Fragility makes an analogous point in saying that, you know, White people are so reticent to admit that anything they've ever done or thought was racist. And the basic thought here is that it's, again, the sort of halo effect or the pitchfork effect that bad people always do bad things. Good people always do good things. Racism is bad. So if I ever did anything racist, I'm a bad person. I'm not a bad person. There, Therefore, whatever I did before wasn't racist. Um, and But, you know, 
applied to ideologies, it seems to be, you know, and this is going back to these tweets, but also to some of these simplistic arguments against communism and against other forms of socialism. It's that an ideology is either, um, you know, you either put a pitchfork next to it or you put a halo over it. And uh, democratic socialism or any form of socialism, well, it's close to communism and communism is just as bad as Nazism and it's just as bad as anything else. And it has all these hundred million people died. And so it all gets shoved into that box and all nuance is gone. We can't learn from the successes that the Soviet bloc countries had. They also had many failures. We're not denying any of the crimes as well, as we've said several times. But, you know, if you can't say a good thing about something because of this, no, that's the pitchfork effect. Everything they did um, has to be evil. Um, and that seems a characteristic case of it. Well, Kirsten, I was going to ask you about this because this is something that you've written about uh, both in this article and elsewhere about what, kind of what we lose uh in our political and, and, and social cultural dis discussions when when we are sort of uh, enthralled to this kind of pitchfork effect i mean that's what you're a big part of what your your book why women have better sex under socialism was about right is that uh it, because of the demonization of these regimes we can't you can't talk about uh, a, a reality which is that like according to like survey data a lot of women in a lot of uh, soviet bloc countries were were in, by some accounts happier than women in capitalist countries uh uh today or or or, or women you know who are no longer under those regimes in certain respects are not happy about certain parts of their lives uh, the way that they were under the Soviet bloc. So can you just talk about about the kind of practical uh, effects of that kind of uh, uh, rhetoric sort of shutting down any discuss real discussion of what actually went on in those countries, the good and the bad? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I just, I, I have a, a, a very um, clear answer to that, but I just wanted to just tag on to one more thing that Scott said about, um, the, and, and the tweets that Megan read, which I also think that, you know, one of the, the mistakes of our article <laughs> in some ways was that we assumed that people on the right are reasonable. Um, and I don't think that reason is what they're appealing to. I think emotion is what they're appealing to. And if you go back, there's a wonderful essay written in 1933 by the political economist Karl Polanyi um, called The Essence of Fascism. And he really talks about how fascism is in essence, it's anti-socialist. It has to be because it views socialism as sort of the, the natural outcome of liberal democracy. And it's a complicated argument, but it's a really interesting argument. But the one thing, and, and I've been reading all these books, um, Paxton has a book called The Anatomy of Fascism. Jason Stanley has a book called How Fascism Works. And, and I mentioned Traverso's um, book about fascism as well, where he creates this term post-fascism. And a lot of people actually are, are hesitant nowadays to put fascism on the traditional right wing, right left spectrum because they're ideological, ideological opportunists and because they're generally pretty incoherent. And I think that the thing about those tweets, Megan, that you read is their incoherence is part of the point, right? They're, they're triggering people. They just want to trigger you. They're triggering us by being so stupid and absurd, right? But they're also triggering people who are, you know, less aware of the nuances of history. I'm trying to be very kind here in my words. I'm choosing my words carefully. And if, you know, you just, you can just trigger exactly what Scott says. You can just throw the word Nazi into anything and then suddenly everything's bad. And, and you know, Karl Marx and um, Stalin and LGBT people, I mean, like, 
it's it's like it doesn't matter what the relationships are it's just like word association for them it's word salad and as micah pointed out i think it's effective it's like the people in venezuela eating dogs thing right it's effective it gets people it it, it jerks on them emotionally and then they're like i am going to stand with trump because i have to re i have to fight against these nazi antifa jew gay killing evil looting you know black cutting off your genitals yeah cutting off your genitals right <laughs> i mean you know it's just all a bunch of associations so so i you know i think it's worth pointing out here that it's effective what they're doing even if it's stupid it's effective and so we should at least pause for a moment and and ask ourselves like why is it working so well and this comes directly leads into, Micah, your question, this last question about what happens when we lose the ability to have nuance about our discussions of the 20th century past and the 20th century experiments with state socialism, particularly in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And, you know, you know, so one of the most frustrating things that I have to say about working in this field, and I've been doing research on this field for the better part of 25 years. So I've been doing this for a really long time. And I've been trying for a really long time to try to excavate what was good or what we could learn from what these regimes did, and particularly around the issue of women's rights. That's been the, the square focus of my research for over two decades. And every time I publish something, a book, an article, you know, whether it's a popular book or an academic book, you know, I immediately get this sort of ad hominem deplatforming of, well, you don't know what you're talking about because you didn't live under socialism, right? So that's like step number one is always deplatform the person. And, um, and, and what's interesting, right, is then if I point to the work of, let's say, a younger colleague of mine in Eastern Europe, who is actually working in the East European archives and actually doing interviews and actually doing surveys. And I say, okay, well, here's somebody from the region who's doing that work. Then they say, oh, well, you can't believe what they're doing because they're too young. They didn't really experience life under communism. So they're just sort of romanticizing the past. And then I can say, okay, well, what about my more senior colleagues? Because I have a handful of senior colleagues who do really interesting research, especially around women's rights. And they find very clearly substantiating evidence for a lot of my points. And then they say, oh, but you can't trust them because they lived under communism. And so they were brainwashed by the totalitarian regime. So anything that they say is suspect. So you can't trust somebody who didn't live under communism. You can't trust somebody who lived under communism. And you can't trust somebody who's the child of somebody who lived under communism. So who can you trust? Nobody other than the people who say bad things about communism. So there's this sort of hermetically sealed deplatforming that goes on, which means that for a lot of liberals, and you mentioned, you know, the anti-Stalinism and, you know, many socialist people, you know, it's really worth pointing out here that after Khrushchev's secret speech, a lot of Western communists and socialists were horrified to learn what happened in the Soviet Union. And that's really, really important. There was also a really critical moment in 1968 when the Soviet tanks rolled into Czechoslovakia during the Prague Spring. So many you know, amazing people like E.P. Thompson, incredible figures on the left were so disillusioned with what happened, with what was happening in Eastern Europe. Um, and again, you know, Afghanistan in 1980 was another moment, I think. And so 
So, you know, the Soviet Union was not a really good place <laughs> for socialism to, to be happening. And, and, and I think that unfortunately, it loomed so large in our imagination that it's very easy to do what Scott was saying, to create this pitchfork effect where we take the entire history of socialism and democratic socialism and Marxism and anarchism and everything, and we just lump it into the worst crimes of Stalinism. And all of the nuance and complexity in the region, the fact that Yugoslavia was non-aligned, the fact that Hungary had what was called goulash communism because they had you know, a secondary free markets, essentially. The fact that there were these democratic impulses in places like Czechoslovakia that were trying to create socialism with a quote unquote human face. The fact that solidarity in, in Poland, right, was again a kind of reform movement from the workers. The fact that Gorbachev himself, Glasnost and Perestroika were policies that were designed to reform what they recognized as a system that was falling apart and had a lot of problems. Like all of the nuance and complexity of the Eastern Bloc, and there's and, and, and if we get outside of the Eastern Bloc and we think about places like um, you know, Yemen or Cuba or experiments with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua or Vietnam or China, like you can't even say for a second that this is all just one thing and is entirely reducible to Stalin. Not to mention communist parties that are participating in the democratic electoral process in places like India or West European communist parties, or social democratic parties, right? So it's so disingenuous on the part of the other side to, to try to reduce everything to this one, you know, really, really horrible experience with 20th century state socialism. And I think what it does, you know, as I've said before, it's a cudgel to smash leftist political dreams it's also a, a kind of blackwashing of history, right? It's a way of saying anything that is associated with these ideas will inevitably lead to the gulag. And so, um, and anybody who believes in those ideas or who's kind of um, seduced by those ideas is a dupe or is you know, a use, useful idiot, right? Um, this was, again, I, I was thinking about the Vivian Gornick podcast, the, the discussion that you guys had about that book, you know, this idea that like you, you, you're like, it's almost apostasy, like you leave the socialist party, you leave the ideology behind and suddenly like you're free and, um, you know, you can go out there and compete in markets or whatever. I don't know that it's a delusion. And I think that that's a really insidious, um, mental way of, of creating a kind of straitjacket on young people's imaginations, the way in which people can even think about the history of socialism or communism in our own country, let alone in other countries, if the only way you come to that history is through the lens of Animal Farm or George Orwell's 1984, right? Like the, the books that we teach in middle school and high school about communism. The ways that, that, that the, basically the, the, the fundamental filter that you get is an anti-communist filter if you grow up in the United States, which means that even if you start thinking, uh, you know, for, for people who aren't like radically committed, if you start thinking about those things, you are like castigated or just sort of patted on the head like, oh yeah, I went through a, a Marxist phase once too, like how nice for you, you'll grow out of it just like I did. Right. I don't know if you guys get that kind of patronizing 
Um, never. That's never happened to me. I guess I must be really lucky. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I can say that I'm old enough now that I at least I can say I haven't grown. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, you, if there's more age to come. But um, but I remember. Be, but again, I mean, I, you know, as I, I mentioned to you guys earlier, I came to socialism at a particular moment in time when it was not at all OK to be at all a socialist. And so, yeah, I got a lot of sort of like patronizing you know, oh, yeah, it's okay. We understand you're going to read Marx for a little while, but, you know, eventually you'll find your way to like Hayek and Friedman and all the real economists or whatever. I don't know. I wanted to mention one other thing about this whole strategy. You know, we're saying that the, the right is making these arguments. I've got scare quotes around that because they just say these things. And, and Kristen was suggesting that they aren't really trying to appeal to reason, that that's, that's not really the strategy. Just make these emotional connections and had the pitchfork effect and the halo effect. But one thing in the background is that perhaps helps to make that an effective strategy is that they've actually claimed a monopoly on reason. They claim to be the one, the side of reason. Um, one example of this, um, I plugged into Google, illogic of the left, in quotes, so for exact phrase, and I get 80,000 hits. I plug in illogic of the right, and I get 11. Um, and and you get things like, you know, of course, you have Ben Shapiro's book, you know, Facts Don't Care About Your Feelings. And, you know, and that it's it's the the in, and Jordan Peterson, um, you know, in his debate with Zizek, you know, basically made it clear that he thought that um, communists and socialists don't think clearly. They don't really think rigorously. They just see things and they accept them as true, whereas these good conservatives, they're the ones who are doing the rigorous thought. So that's part of the game here is that they're actually, you know, you, you look at their arguments and try to make them arguments, which maybe they just aren't. Um, they're just appeals to emotion and, and the arguments fall apart, but they claim at the same time to be the defenders of logic and reason and that we on the left are just these illogical snowflakes who are just, you know, you know, to be patted on the head and then kicked out. Um, and so it's that seems like a key aspect of their strategy as well. Um, Kristen, I interviewed you a while ago about your book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. One of the things that I took away from reading your book actually isn't just about gender relations um, in the Eastern Bloc. It's it's about the sort of like rich and contradictory texture of life in general in the Eastern Bloc. And I think it really challenges this spectrum of perceptions that Americans have or that people in the West have about what life was like there and then, which ranges from kind of like dull conformity, you know, like people in gray uniforms with shaved heads, all the way to this litany of incredibly ugly stereotypes, ranging from, you know, political um, um, repression that was like so totalizing that it actually involved, um, you know, so totalizing that it crept into your life and, and was like so deeply repressive that there, there was no individual autonomy whatsoever, all the way to the incredibly ugly stuff that actually we can hear in this clip that you sent us of uh, some someone on the right responding to your book when it came out in 2017. So can we hear that? Professor Godsey supports this assertion by interviewing one or two women who remember the era fondly and by ignoring the government genocide, blood-soaked purges, life-crushing breadlines, soul-destroying oppression, domestic spying, epidemic alcoholism, and widespread wife-beating that characterized socialist life in Russia. Now, you may ask, why would a woman write or publish such nonsense? And the answer is, 
I don't know. Maybe Professor Godsey has some strange Fifty Shades of Grey type fantasy about how hot it would be to have sex while being enslaved by a Soviet state. And if so, I say, who are we to judge her girlish dreams? It's, it's like incredibly like sexist for one thing. And also it's um, the litany of stereotypes, like I yeah. said, about life, life uh, under communism. Can we right. can we address that a little bit? And I also I mean, I, I, I can't I can't help but. Um, think about the fact that, you know, in the United States, we're experiencing a, an economic crisis of epic proportions that has left one in eight households experiencing food insecurity. And I feel that there is a bit of a double standard when it comes to things like starvation or, or um, you know, in, insecurity in ordinary people's lives. Um, so, yeah, what are your top line reactions to that uh, insane thing that that man said? <laughs> Right. Well, I also, I mean, I don't know if you also want to play the Greg Goodfield clip, which is much shorter, um, where he, well, I could just say, you know, where he basically says that the only reason the New York Times originally published the piece was because um, anybody who could reject it, right? Anybody who could, you know, basically say that it wasn't true was already dead. So that's the great thing about socialism. Everybody dies before you get around to asking. So here's the thing, right? I have spent... The better part, again, of 25 years doing research in Eastern Europe. And I can tell you, right, I was also married to a Bulgarian. So I have Bulgarian uh, in-laws and I have a brother-in-law and sister-in-law and I've got nephews. I have a lot of friends in this part of the world. And look, anybody who lived under communism can tell you, yeah, there were some definitely negative things, but everybody also has home movies and photo album after photo album of what appears to them as totally normal life under socialism. People got married, people went to school, people had kids, people had jobs, people did all of the things that we do in the United States. Now, the 30s in the Soviet Union is a huge exception to this, obviously, right? But if we're looking at ordinary life in places in the 60s and 70s, like Poland or Czechoslovakia or Bulgaria, or especially Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia had like state funded soft porn magazines, right? Um, you know, th these are not the kinds of things. They had like rock and roll. They had, um, people in Yugoslavia could travel to the West, right? Hungary was relatively liberal. Certainly Czechoslovakia in the 60s was relatively liberal. People had totally normal lives. They didn't have jeans. They didn't have fancy Western cigarettes or Western whiskeys, right? They didn't have some of the things that they wanted. They couldn't travel freely. There are lots of downsides here, but they had a basic level of, of social security, which many people in the region long for today. I've just finished a book project with a colleague of mine at Penn, who's a political scientist named Mitchell Orenstein. And we looked at 30 years of data for 29 post-socialist countries. And what we found is throughout this entire region, a little bit more than half, between half and two thirds of people still today in 2020 do not have the standard of living that they had in 1989 or 1991 when communism collapsed. All right, so this is what free markets and democracy brings is actually lower standard of living. 
So I had a student write a paper on food security. We're looking at food security in post-communist um, Russia and Ukraine. And one of the things that she did, which was really interesting, was look at post-war, and this is important, right? This was after, this begins like in the 50s, post-war food security in the Soviet Union. Now they didn't have a very varied diet and they ate a lot of meat and dairy products, which turned out not to be very good for their heart. Um, so they had a high rate of cardiovascular disease, especially in the 80s. And as we know, there was also a pretty high rate of alcoholism until Gorbachev instituted um, prohibition. But in fact, most Soviet citizens had very high rates of food security, much higher rates than many other countries. If you look at certain um, human development indicators in a country like Cuba, for instance, and you compare it to a country like Haiti or the Dominican Republic, Cuba comes out ahead. So there are, this is just data. This was why I worked with a political scientist on this book, because I wanted somebody who was actually going to go in and get me and, you know, get numbers, right? So that we could actually talk. Now, it turns out that some things after some countries, Slovenia, Poland, Czech, Czech uh, and Slovak republics have done fairly well. But outside of the sort of Visegrad countries, and you, interestingly, in places like Hungary, there's a lot of anger at the transition process. There's, you know, so, so, so if you think about what we, what you said about all of the food insecurity in the United States right now, the hypocrisy, the fact that people are not going to a doctor because they're afraid of the bills, right? Um, I think I, I heard on a podcast that you cut your finger and, and Micah, you were talking about getting um, hit on your bike by a car. And like the first thought in your head is like, where my insurance is, is the hospital and network? Am I going to be okay, right? Like the level of social security that people had around things like education, around things like healthcare, around things like housing, around things like food was very high. Now, again, that doesn't mean you got like, you know, you had strawberries when you wanted to have strawberries, you know, and when, and I have, because of the book, um, the Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, right? It's been translated now, I think it has 13 foreign editions. And five of those editions are in countries of the former Eastern Bloc. It's been translated, just came out in Russia like two weeks ago. It's Polish, Czech, Slovak, and, and German, uh, for Eastern Germany. And I've had so many emails from people who've just said, thank you for telling people that our lives weren't that bad. They weren't great but they weren't that bad. So again, there's lots of nuance that you have to um, build into any conversation about 20th century state socialism. But anybody who lived in the region, and contrary to what Fox News and Greg Goodfield says, they are not all dead. Like, I mean, I don't even know how he could say that when like they were probably reporting on Putin like in an, a previous news uh, segment, and Putin was obviously alive during right the Cold War. So anybody who lived under that period, right, especially people who are still in the region, they have a much more nuanced sense of what life was like. And so that's where this anti-communism, that's where the rubber hits the road. And Scott and I, in the article, you know, I think we both really felt strongly that there's this logical contradiction. There's this problem with this narrative, which is if it was so bad, why are so many people nostalgic for it? Why are so many people saying that they want to go back? Right. And ultimately, I think, you know, I don't think we can go back to 20th century state communism or socialism. I don't think we should. We should. Right. But I think that one of the things that I try to do in my work 
Um, and and I think not just me, but some of my colleagues who are working in this field, um, we face many sort of structural and ideological barriers in our work. But one of the things that we're trying to do is nuance the narrative of the past. Because again, if anti-communism is the cudgel that is used to squash dreams of you know, a more just, equitable, and sustainable future, and the, the sort of handle of the cudgel is the experience of 20th century state socialism and, and its reduction to the horrors of Stalinism, then one way to kind of mitigate the effects of that cudgel on ordinary people, on ordinary liberals, on people who are coming to socialism for the first time, especially young people, is to actually kind of peel back the, you know, the scrim that we have, this, this, this terrible lens that we are always seeing Eastern Europe through in terms of anti-communism, to peel it back and actually like, w go watch some communist era movies, right? Watch newsreels about the Prague Spring. I mean, these are, these are things that you can find on the internet, right? YouTube is filled with these things. Listen to ordinary people talk about their lives under communism. There are all sorts of ways in which you can access. There have been oral histories and there has been a lot of scholarship and, and there's like a wonderful documentary, My Perestroika. There are a lot of really interesting things that you can actually go back and say, hey, wait a minute, the story that they're telling me about this particular experience of socialism in the past isn't true. And, and this is where it comes back to, I think that it's, it's a little bit of just mendacity. Either it's mendacity or it's stupidity, and, or it's both. But I think that in some ways, people who, are, who take five seconds to think about it will be like, yeah, why are people in Eastern Europe nostalgic for totalitarianism? That's weird. Or, you know, why is it that the Soviets won so many medals at the Olympics? Or why was it the Soviets like put Sputnik up and kind of beat us at the space race? And why was it that the first woman in space was from the Soviet Union? And why was it that like in ballet or in um, music, you know, this, the Soviets had so many achievements in science that we don't really recognize, partially because we're not taught about Valentina Tereshkova. We're only taught about John Glenn. We're not really taught about these other kinds of um, achievements. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that like, because of the Soviets, right? Because of Sputnik in 1957, we have the National Defense Education Act, which actually puts federal funds into the tra training in math and science for women and people of color. Um, because of the Soviets kicking our butts in the medal count uh, at the Olympics, we eventually got Title IX, which increased the participation of women in sports so that we could compete. There's a lot of ways in which the superpower rivalry, and then, and then there's this wonderful book by Mary Dudziak called Cold War Civil Rights, where she talks about the ways in which the Soviets on the international stage constantly poking their finger in the US eye about Jim Crow and civil rights actually served as a catalyst for the civil rights movement. And I think you could give a lot of examples here um, of the ways in which the Soviet Union has always been our foil. And that it's been nece not necessarily a bad thing for the US, it's actually pushed us on a kind of more progressive path. So if I'm gonna be a little bit optimistic, I would say that I feel like the work of, of, of complicating the anti-communist narrative or what Scott and I in the article, we referring to Clifford Geertz, we call it anti-anti-communism. 
So even if you're not a communist or if you're not a socialist, you can be anti-anti-communist, right? The same way you can be in, in, in Geertz's um, book, he talks about anti-anti-relativism. So you can be anti-anti-relativism without being a relativist. And I think that this is a really important concept because it means that you can look at the kind of duplicity and mendacity and the simplicity of the narratives coming out of the right. And to be fair, a little bit of the liberal left because the liberal left has had its anti-Stalinist moments in this country too and, and has very powerful anti-Stalinist moments, anti-left moments. And you can, you can say, okay, that discourse serves a very specific political purpose in this particular political moment that we're living in. And I want to understand what's behind that discourse. And part of understanding what's behind that discourse is actually going and if you can't or don't want to read the history books, then at least watch some YouTube videos, you know, <laughs> um, get on Netflix and watch Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States. There are lots of good things that you could go out there and access Howard Zinn's People History of the United States. There's some really good books out there that will help you understand where this deep seated red baiting tendency comes from and how it's, you know, resurgent again today in, in the Trump campaign, like completely. I, I was going to add to your to your list of good provocative questions a moment ago. Why why if the Soviet Union is essentially the same as Nazi Germany did, sixteen or seventeen million um, Soviet citizens die in World War II fighting the Nazis? And furthermore, I think when you're talking about watching Soviet cinema, if the Soviets are the same as the Nazis, then why is the strongest rebuke of fascism that I have ever seen in my entire life either literary? or uh, you know, nonfiction coming from Soviet Russia. I mean, I, I would specifically cite the 1985 film, Come and See, if you wanna see like a thorough, exactly. thorough rejection of fascism, that's where you should look. Um, so yeah, I agree with you that we have to reject that red baiting and that starts with a nuancing our understanding of what precisely was going on in the Soviet Union, which doesn't, doesn't require us to completely reject, uh, to close our eyes to the Stalin's crimes whatsoever, simply to add some nuance. Absolutely. It's a, a great place to wrap it up. Scott, uh, do you have any final thoughts you want to add here? A quote occurred to me when Kristen was talking about the right and either their mendacity or or stupidity or something, you know, that sort of not wanting, you know, that and, and this can be a problem on both sides, not wanting to sort of think through these things and just putting things into boxes. But the A.E. Hausman had a, has a widely cited quote. I don't know if it's actually real. It's all over the Internet. But, you know, I didn't ever find a page for it. But he says, a moment's thought would have shown him. But a moment is a long time and thought is a painful process. And I think that sort of underlies some of this debate is people don't want to think through um, what exactly they're saying. They want simplistic narratives because that's so much easier. Well, thank you uh, to both of you for a, a great discussion, a great article, and uh, we'll link to it in the, the uh, episode description and uh, make sure all of our listeners uh, read it. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, that was great, guys. Thanks so much. It was a blast.